0: Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today is all about love what it does to our brain, why it makes us crazy and how to use science to help us find and more importantly, retain lasting love, which is possible. Yay. And it's not just me speaking. It's my expert. My guest today is biological anthropologist and senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, Dr. Helen Fisher. Helen, thank you so much for being here. I'm
1: delighted to be here, Megan. Thank you.
0: So that's let, let's just start with the optimistic note, which I've I've heard in your TED talks and in your podcast interviews. You've done lasting love and attachment. Long-lasting love is indeed possible.
1: No question about it. That it's possible, and we've actually proved it. Uh, proven it in the brain. I mean, I and my colleagues have now put over a hundred people into a brain scanner and studied the brain circuitry of romantic love and attachment. And the first group were people who had just fallen happily in love. The second were people who rejected in love. And the third, just as you're saying, are people who were in love long-term. They kept on coming into the lab and saying, I'm still in love with him. I'm still in love with her. And these people were all married an average of 21 years. Uh, they were all in their 50s and 60s. Uh, they, all, The vast majority had adult children. and um, And they said that they were in love. So we put them in the brain scanner using... Uh, fMRI. And sure enough, we found the same activity in the same brain regions linked with intense romantic love that we found among uh, people who were just falling in love. But we also found something else. You know, before you put people in this these scanners, it's very expensive, very time consuming. You give them a lot of questionnaires before you put them in the scanner. And so one of the questionnaires we put, uh, asked them to fill out was uh, unhappiness. And we found three brain regions linked with long-term happiness. Now, psychologists will tell you all kinds of things about what happens, you know, how to make a happy long-term partnership, all good. But this is what happens in the brain. We found activity in three brain regions, a brain region linked with empathy, a brain region linked with controlling your own stress and your own emotions, and a brain region linked with what I call positive Illusions—the ability to overlook what you don't like about somebody and mm-hmm. focus on what you do—so it's entirely possible. Uh, in one study I did, I asked uh, 1,500 long-term married people whether they would marry the same person again, and something like 82% said yes. So we're always hearing the bad news, but the right, is, the the is the spouse in the room
0: when you do that question? <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> no, but uh, there's no question about it that people lie. They not only lie to other people, but they lie to themselves. But uh, brain scanning machines don't lie. Uh, good and, uh, and you can see the activity in various brain regions uh, as they look at a photograph of their sweetheart. And uh, so uh. that's uh, pretty convincing.
0: OK, so in, in those happiness areas, like does does that apply to the beginning, like the romantic love and the lust stage? Because I know we're going to get to those as well.
1: Yeah, Uh, we didn't, uh, I didn't study um, that. I didn't put in long-term happiness questionnaires, of course, when people had just fallen in love within the last uh, six weeks. But you know what? Um, Romantic love can be triggered instantly. It's like a sleeping cat. It can be awakened instantly, just like you can be scared instantly. You can be angry instantly. You can be in love instantly. It's a brain region that can be triggered. Mm. But feelings of deep attachment for somebody takes time. And that's, I think, one of the things that we really see in a long-term partnership. Not only that feeling of intense romantic love still, but also feelings of deep attachment, which is a different brain system.
0: All right. So I've heard you talk about those three stages, or I I don't know if you'd call them stages or just sort of areas of love. There's lust or sex drive. There's romantic love. That's the... Oh my God, we're in love, the beginning. And then there's the <laughs> the longer attachment stage. And I want to kick it off by talking to you about um, Bill Maher. <laughs> it's a weird place to start, but he is a confirmed bachelor. He loves women. He talks very openly about that fact and about the fact that he's not really interested in getting married or working on sort of the long, long-term relationship because he thinks the sacrifice is passion. And it was funny because I was on a show one of the times and we were talking backstage and I was like, I really want to disabuse you of this notion. I think there can be passion, as as you would say, Helen, in, in attachment, you know, in the long term version. Good for you, and, Megan. Good for you. And he, did not, he didn't agree and he didn't want to hear it. And he thought I was being holier than thou. And I was like, OK, wrong target. And I kind of moved on. But yeah. I maintain, right, that their passion can be there for all three stages, Absolutely.
1: Well, first of all, very smart of you to not call them stages. I mean, originally you said, well, they basically are brain systems, three brain systems that evolve from mating and reproduction, sex drive, feelings of intense romantic love, and feelings of deep attachment. And they're different brain systems They can operate together or apart uh, separately. um, But uh, in a long term, very happy marriage, we found all three. They still were deeply interested in in kissing and hugging, still uh, at least at times coming and going, feelings of intense romantic love and an underlying thing of deep uh, attachment. But I just want to tell you something about him. Um, I think that you know a lot of people won't agree with me, but in a long-term, very good marriage or relationship, I don't feel you need to work. I mean, it's very popular in America to think that, oh you. Down, oh, you have to do all this work. I don't think that's true. And my colleague at the Kinsey Institute, uh, uh, Dr. Justin Garcia, the two of us agree that you got to pick the right person. Yes. <laughs> and if you've got the right person, and that's what he hasn't done. He hasn't found the kind of person that um, where you don't have to make sacrifices, where you're dying to get home and talk to the person. You know, I mean, for example, I got married, what, a year ago. Now I'm seven. I was married at seventy-five, <laughs> well. so I might have agreed with them some time ago. But the bottom line is, when you find the right person, um, it's a pleasure, you know. And he, he, I don't know how old he is, but uh, eventually he may well find the right person. And and I think there's tricks too. I mean, for example, I and my sweetheart, we do L A T, living apart together. So I have my apartment. He has his. I see him almost every night, but two, a couple nights a week. I'm, I'm out by myself. I go see my girlfriends. I happen to love the theater and the arts, et cetera. And he loves to read and eat pizza. And I don't, I mean, I like to read, but bottom line is, so, I mean, if you can find a person who who enables you to be who you really are, Mm -hmm. uh, who enjoys and loves who you really are uh, uh, and lets you be yourself, uh, you can find you it, it can work it 's just that he hasn 't met that person yet, and he 's gotten himself bogged down in I think a good deal of psychology that long term partnerships take work.
0: Yes, I tried to break through it. And I know what he's talking about, that, that initial swoony feeling. But even when you are in a relationship that's a year or two, that initial swoony feeling doesn't necessarily last that long. But if if nurtured, if you've chosen well, it can it can grow into something very exciting. And that maintains the heat when you want the heat. Right. I think that's he doesn't want to give up the heat. Right and um so i will will i'm going to send this segment to him and and then we'll see what his is <laughs> Well the responses. bottom line is there's Be ways care. to keep
1: these on you know and one of them is novelty 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 you know the basic brain system for romantic love is triggered by it's triggered by the dopamine system that's what gives you the focus the energy the elation the optimism the craving for another person and what you got to do is keep triggering that brain system doing novel things together Uh, You know, uh, I don't mean just swinging from chandeliers, just take your bicycles off to dinner instead of uh, taking the car, Uh, go someplace different for your summer vacation. And this is one of the reasons that um, that, um, uh, you know, when you go and take a vacation, you can suddenly feel romance again because Mm -hmm. it's so novel. And that novelty is triggering the dopamine system and giving you those sensations again.
0: I love that. Yes, I I heard you. It was in one of your TED Talks or one of the things talking about how there was a guy who was really he he really felt uh, romantic attraction for this woman and she didn't feel the same. And then they went off on a business trip to China, I think. And so he was like, this is my opportunity. It's there's novelty and there's a, a new place. And tell us what happened
1: oh guys I love this story I haven't told this story in so long well he, he was it's a true story he was a young graduate student he had studied my work and that of my um uh, colleagues and he knew that when you have a not do a novel thing with somebody it can drive that dopamine up in the brain and to push you over that threshold into falling in love. So anyway, he was going to China. He was madly in love with another graduate student. She was not in love with him. And he said, okay, we're going to go to China. That's pretty exciting. So when they were in China, big hotel, he said, well, would you go on a, a rickshaw ride with me. And she said, sure. And off they go. And they're wheeling through the cars and the buses and the bicycles and the streets. And she's, you know, squealing with enjoyment and holding on to his arm. And he kept on thinking, oh, you know, this'll do it. This is going to drive up the dopamine in her head. And she'll get off of this rickshaw and be thrilled with me. She'll fall in love with me. So they get off the rickshaw. She throws her arms up. She says, Wasn't that wonderful? And wasn't that rickshaw driver handsome? (laughs) So the bottom line is you can trigger this novelty, but you got to have it focused on the right person.
0: It's not necessarily going to come your way. But it's a good thing to remember if you're in a committed relationship, too, that that novelty can have the same effect on you and your partner. You say it could be as simple as uh, picking a new recipe and cooking together. As you say, it doesn't have to be anything But I I will tell you, having listened, you know, I've been neck deep in Helen Fisher for uh, a couple of weeks now, and I did buy myself some saucy new things from my husband, and you were not wrong. (laughs) Oh, terrific, Megan.
1: (laughs) We've been married going on 14 years now. Tonight's Valentine's Day, of course, and I told my uh, new husband to to show up in a tuxedo. What the hell? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I love it. So this this reminds me of something you wrote during COVID. Uh, and it was about how to keep how to keep things fresh while you're in quarantine. But I thought all of your suggestions could work. Thankfully, we're out of that period could work at any point in a relationship about how to keep it fresh, how to keep it novel. And this could be for people who are dating a couple of years, too. It's just sort of newness at a moment's notice, newness without that much effort. Um, can you tick off some of those things that were in your uh, I think it was in the, in the Times? It was a column you had. Oh sure, if I can remember them all, you might know them better than me. Well, there's some um, card uh, games and some some like yeah. word games. You um, know, like remember when?
1: Absolutely. Like- uh, play hard. You know, when you play with somebody, you're driving dopamine up in the brain, and um and and triggering feelings of optimism, focus, motivation, and energy. So sure. Well, first of all. Even if you live in a very small place, you got to find a part of the room, a part of the house that's yours so that you can get away from the relationship for a period of time uh, and and come back to it. I would also say uh, don't show up in your sweatpants for dinner. Uh, You know, eat in different parts of the house, learn to cook new things together, uh, go out and and figure out the garden in a different way. Definitely uh, play games together, Um, you know, uh, uh, have a comedy night, have a dress up night, um, make love in different parts of the house or a different, you know, uh, a different place. Novelty, novelty, novelty. And surprise! Read a different book and come on and come to the to the table and and talk to him about some or her about something that's new and interesting and different. Find a different kinds of of things to watch together on television. Um, so, you know, it's, it's all possible. I mean, the brain is easily tricked. <laughs>
0: yeah. And it's, it's not that hard. I'll tell you, we, we do in my family, we do, you know, all five of us, um, we will do a wig night at random and just, everybody can show. I was a crazy collection of like just fun wigs, different colors and all that. And then we'll do a um, hat night and we'll do a costume night. We'll do a karaoke night, but just random. Um, and that sort of keeps the whole family in on it. And it also introduces like just a new element. Every night can be not every night, but. More nights than normal can be celebratory, fun, a little getaway without getting away. I think all that helps. And then
1: you've got um, a days,
0: weeks, months to laugh about it after it's all over.
1: Oh, mm-hmm. my God, did you see that wig that my, my little girl did? And oh, how about that moment when da-da-da-da? And you can play charades is a good game. Yeah. Uh, Murder in the Dark is when I always played as a child. Oh. What I'm going to do tonight with my husband is play games. We have What's three, murder three in three the dark? Planes. Oh, murder in the dark! Oh, I played that as a child. Well, um, there's one person who's the who's the murderer, and there's uh, and uh, and there's somebody who is the sheriff or the the, the detective, and um, you, you you everybody has a little. There's a little sheet of paper, and let's say you've got seven people playing, uh, and one sheet of paper says murderer, and the other says the uh, sheriff. Uh, or the, the the detective. So anyway, you put them all in a hat. Everybody grabs their sheet of paper. They all know uh, uh, who the uh, detective is. Nobody knows who the murderer is. You turn out all the lights. The detective leaves the room. And you mill around in the room. And, of course, the murderer knows who the murderer is. And in the dark, he stabs somebody in the back, you know, just with their fist, but very lightly. At that point, they have to freeze. Everybody has to freeze at that moment with the when the murderer when the murder person gets murdered and everybody has to freeze, except the murderer who can move until the lights are turned on. Then the detective comes in and asks everybody questions. Everybody has to tell the truth, except the murderer. It's hilarious. I love (laughs) this.
0: I love a good murder. (laughs) 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 That sounds amazing. I I
1: loved it as a kid,
0: but I love all, all kinds of board
1: games too. And you know,
0: We play another one that's, it's so simple. We know it as Celebrity. I don't know, maybe has another name, but it is so easy. All you need is paper and pen. And um, you... Each person writes down the name of five, quote, celebrities, but it doesn't have to be a real celebrity. It could be, you know, your Nana, but it has to be somebody who everyone in the family would know by the description. Right. So it's like Mm -hmm. just celebrities within your family uh, or outside. And uh, you put it all in the hat. And let's say I start. I've got the hat and I've got all everybody's entries and I've got twenty five entries in there. I pick it up and let's say let's say I read Madonna and I say, oh, she sings, uh, you know, holiday. She's blonde. She wears the bras with the boobs that stick out. You can't say her name, but you can. And then they're like Madonna. And as soon as they say that, I, you throw the paper to the side. And your goal is to get through as many as you can. I think we do it within 60 seconds. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you sort of try to rack it up. Anyway, it's fun. You go around and whoever gets does it. In, uh, in right. I the, think we call man. that
1: salad bowl. That um, works. Yeah. And it's the same. It's the same thing. Uh, I'm miserable at it because I don't know that many public people. But
0: uh, <laughs> Yours are all up in the academic. world of academia. <laughs> Everybody's like, don't play with Helen. <laughs> no, 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 definitely don't play with Helen. <laughs> but wait, let me circle I'm back to your your, your marriage and your living so arrangement. I did Pardon read me? that. I did read about your marriage and your living arrangement about how you, have, how you have like your own separate. I will I will do you and your love this. The courtesy of not referring you to Woody and Mia <laughs> because. They, they had a similar situation where they didn't live in the same place. But you do. You just take two nights. Um, that, to me, does not seem like something you could maintain when you have young children like we do. I, if Doug were like, I'm going to go to the other apartment for two nights away, I'd be like, oh, no, you are not. Yeah.
1: You know, it's very interesting because I talked to a man um, who was in that situation. He had a new baby. And, uh um, you know, and I was talking about living apart together. And he said to me, he said, Oh, Helen, if I could only have one night in a hotel room by myself and, and just go to bed when I wanted, eat when I wanted, and not be, you know, and and the woman sitting there, standing there listening to us said, Oh, I'm sure your wife wouldn't like that. And I thought to myself, maybe she would like that. Mm. Maybe she'd like to have the next night off and, and you take the job of being with the children. So I think in a limited way. Uh, uh, a little time apart. You know, I'm, I'm an anthropologist. I mean, for millions of years, we lived in these little hunting and gathering societies, about 25 individuals in the group. And the children were simply handed from one person to another. The job of parenting has become so much more difficult in our modern world. I mean, people are so upset about single mothers in many respects, it's tough for a couple to raise children all by themselves. We really did evolve in a group, and in which children could wander from one par- one parent uh, role model to another, and and it took a lot of burden off of everybody. So, uh, yes, it's a it's a it's it, parenting is is a, a re- very rewarding but yeah. can be very stressful.
0: But it's true. You you raise a good point because I mean, most of my friends in New York and I are on the older side in terms of mothering. And, you know, our moms are either not capable of, you know, taking care of young kids um, or don't live in New York. And so or it's don't like, want to. I mean, it's yeah, we don't want to. So you really don't have that village. <laughs> no, you don't yeah. have the village. No, you yeah. can't afford to be manned down. It's like all it's got all hands on deck. Now that they're getting a little older. It's easier. But certainly when they were toddlers, it was like, oh, my God, dude, you're not going anywhere. sit right there. Now they're 12, 10 and eight. And it's super fun.
1: Oh, good. It's a, I happen to love that age. You know, I make a lot of speeches and you can really talk about love and sex to people that age because they're not, they haven't turned embarrassed. They're just curious about it. So, you know, once they've been 13, 14, they're, they're do, doing too much giggling and too much purring and too much, you know, being embarrassed. But the young are very, just very interested in. It. And by the way, you know, these three brain systems, young children can be in love. Our, uh, I mean, this is a brain system from the sex drive. Well, I wonder about and this.
0: Because, yeah. you know, puppy love is a phrase for a reason. Yeah, it's a good idea.
1: You know, um, the the youngest person I ever met who was in love was two and a half. What? And his mother, every single time, a particular told me, every single time a particular little girl would come over, he'd just sit right next to her and stroke her hair and gaze at her. And then... Uh, Uh, After she left, he'd be depressed for about an hour and a half. So it's a basic brain system. How about any of your children? Are they in love?
0: No one's been in love yet. But I will say my my oldest child, Yates, when he was about six, I'd say we were he was learning how to swim or just practicing his swimming at this uh, pool and there was a young she was probably 24 year old lifeguard who was very cute and uh boy he loved to make his swimming lessons and uh one day he <laughs> went and she wasn't there and i said he was so disappointed he's like where is she and 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 i said uh you really like her don't you and he said yes and i said why do you like her so much and he said because she looks so good <laughs> <laughs>
1: Good for him, Good but reason. I won't be the first mama, so That's exactly right. hold your hat.
0: All right. So speaking of the young people, had a hilarious conversation uh, with one of my staff before we started the interview about how you're going to help her redo her Hinge profile for the ancient people like myself who had no idea what Hinge was. Um, it's mm. one of those online sites. It's not a Tinder. She was quick to tell me it's not Tinder. Um, and We're going to get into the younger folks and the dating set in 2022. I'm so glad that I'm not a member of it. But Helen has got some thoughts if you are in it or would like to know more about what the hell is happening. There, Very happy to have with us today biological anthropologist, I'll get it again, and senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, Dr. Helen Fisher. We'll be right back. Okay, so let's spend a moment on the youngins, because I know that you were the official or are the official sort of love consultant for Match.com. You've got your own site, Chemistry.com. And uh, they came to you for a reason because they thought there there must be some science in helping people connect. Now it's morphed into, yes, there's Tinder where I'm told you just go for just a hookup. Um, there's Bumble, which um, my, my colleague here tells me that's where you go and only the woman can invite the date. Uh, and then there is Hinge where it's not just a Tinder. It's like it can be anything, but you know, she swears she's just going on there for dates and potential relationships. Um, but there's a whole thought behind, like, what do you put on there? What are you looking? You know, how do you find the right person? Um, what are your thoughts on it?
1: Well, first of all, uh, uh, Tinder is not just a hookup site. That's what everybody thinks, um, and I would have thought so too. But the, I spoke to the the sociologist that used to work with it, and uh, and she reported that a good eighty percent of the people, even on Tinder, are, are looking for some sort of commitment. So, mm. um, and I've noticed that, and I've I've been working with Match. I'm a consultant. I'm not on staff. Um, for the last 16 years. And it's remarkable how many people really are looking for some sort of uh, real partnership. Actually, it's not remarkable to me, but I think it's remarkable to the general public. So anyway, I do study this. um, uh, uh, And of course, uh, for the last uh, 11 years, uh, with Match, I've done an annual study called Singles in America. We do not poll the Match members. This is a national representative sample of singles based on the U.S. census. And of course, I every year I create about two hundred questions. Uh, we go out and we pull them in a very good place. I come back with thousands of of uh, data points and assemble them. But anyway, so here are some of the things that we've been able to discover uh, about um, that profile for for your colleague here. Number one, um, apparently about six pictures of you is a good idea now i don't know about hinge how many they let you have or whatever but uh, the bottom line is you want a picture of you that um um shows your background uh what your interests are maybe another picture of of you at work um maybe a picture of you at play either skiing or throwing a ball or with your dog or whatever um and you really want a good headshot, so make an effort uh, to get a good headshot and, and a, a, also a good whole figure uh, shot. Uh, we are built to look for certain kinds of people. And so uh, you want to be careful about those uh, those things and be honest, for God's sake. I was with a girlfriend um, a couple of days ago, and she was on one of these sites, and she was looking at a man, and this man had his arm around a girl. Now, what do you does anybody want to go find a man who's got his arm around somebody else? I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. So anyway, be careful with those with those shots—a good head shot, a good body shot.
0: Uh, let me let me jump and in and where... ask you a question. Um, so many people post pictures that are way better looking than they are. They use the filter. They're trying to get the most attractive guy or gal possible. And I always think that that doesn't make any sense because that may lure them into calling you, but eventually they're going to see the real you without the filter. So wouldn't you want an accurate, you know, nice, flattering, but accurate portrayal of the way you look?
1: There's no question about it. And one thing that's that's beginning to work against that, jeopardize that kind of conning, um, is the real rise of video chatting. (laughs) It's a Mm -hmm. new stage in the courtship process. Uh, In the study I did just a couple of months, a few months ago, during the pandemic, uh, video chatting jumped from about 19% prior to the pandemic to about 27%. And millennials and Gen Z are leading the way, over 50% of Gen Z and about 45% of millennials are using video chatting uh, before the first date, which is really wonderful. You know, when you're video chatting, sex is off the table. don't have to deal with whether you're going to kiss and hug, hold hands. Money's off the table. You don't have to decide whether you're going to go to a fancy place or just a coffee house. And what they're reporting is that they're having uh, more meaningful conversations, um, more honesty and transparency, uh, more self-disclosure, and that's men as well as women, Mm -hmm. uh, less interested in what you're looking for looking like. We'll we'll always be interested in what somebody looks like. I mean, we are a walking billboard of who we are and what you look like does say some things about you, but they're much more interested now in whether you are fully employed and financially stable. So bottom line is this thing of, of, of fancy photos that are not real you. They may well be a, uh, a part of the past and not yeah. the future. And now really but, all you've
0: shown is your insecurity, which is not really yeah. what you want to lead with. Yeah. I I will say though that, you know,
1: I mean, people hate it when I say this. And it, you know, courtship is really not about honesty. It's about winning. And it's amazing. I've watched 40,000 people lie to me. <laughs> Women oh lie gosh. about their weight and their age. Men lie about their height and their financial status. But anyway, so get those pictures right. Another thing is, definitely work on that profile of who you are and what you want. It's not true that people are looking at just the pictures. In my study with Matt, um, 68% of single cent, they really did study that profile. And the one thing you want, you want to be optimistic. Nobody likes uh, depressed people. That's Mm. for openers. Um, But um, you also want to be, um, forget sex no discussions of sex forget the cliches everybody wants somebody who can walk on the beach and have wine by the fire forget it details, 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 instead of, oh, I had a wonderful day yesterday, say, oh, yesterday was great. I hopped on my bike. I could feel the wind in my air. I went through the park and the leaves were all scattering. I stopped for a cup of uh, mochaccino or whatever. I mean, details, details, details. Be optimistic and be honest about what you're really looking for. Instead of saying, I like classical music, say, I just love Beethoven's, you know, Fourth Symphony, or I just really like hip-hop or, I really, you know, details, be honest. And also, instead, instead of saying, um, I'm looking for someone who, use the word you. I hope that you will be thus and such. Mm. And, you know, uh, and if you can be funny, by the way, I mean, laughter drives up that dopamine system and gives you real um, uh, feelings of enthusiasm, optimism, mm. energy, focus, motivation. That's so, so good. In fact, yes. Yeah.
0: What were you going to say? In fact, yesterday, go ahead. Oh, I
1: was, I was, I went, I was, you know, a girlfriend came to me. And as I said, she was looking through these uh, alternatives of men. And, um, and one of them said, you know, I don't like cilantro. I started to laugh. (laughs) I I
0: mean, that's hilarious.
1: I get it. It tastes weird. Yeah, And she said, well, I do like cilantro. And so maybe it's not going to be a good match. And I said, oh, <laughs> oh, give me a break, man. You can work this through, you know. <laughs> oh, he's trying to give you a chuckle. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and I said to her, "I tell her right back, uh, I love cilantro. Do you think this can work? Maybe we should try it. You know, something this clever um, that perks their energy. But you know what? There's two problems with the internet dating. Mm. There's nothing wrong with these sites. All they are is introducing sites. That's all they do is introduce you. But the problem is they're so new that we don't know how to use them. And the first big problem and tell your colleague is is don't binge. Uh, The problem is that the brain can only cope with about five to nine options. We're not built for a million different options. And what these people do is they they go, look, 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 and they keep going. And after about nine options, they can't even remember who these people are, and Mm -hmm. and they find nobody. So the bottom line is after you've met nine people, and I mean met either uh, in person or through video chatting, who are within your ballpark at all, get off the site. And focus on one of them, at least one of them more, because, uh, uh, you know, because uh, uh, all the data show that the more you get to know somebody, the more you like them. That's number one. Don't binge. Number two, think of reasons to say yes. Just because he likes cilantro and you don't, it's not, (laughs) don't Mm -hmm. give up. If he likes cats and you like dogs. The problem is that when you first meet somebody, you know so little about them that you overweight what you do know, and that can get you zooming into triggering romantic love, or it can get you zooming into saying, uh, never worked for me. So the bottom line is overlook the negative. We've got a huge brain region linked with what's called negativity bias. We remember the negative, and that has been adaptive for millions of years. It was adaptive to remember. It's nice to remember who likes you, but if you don't remember who doesn't like you, you could die. So we remember the negative in almost all kinds of circumstances. Overlook it. Positive illusions. Focus on what you do like and don't binge. And he, she is out there, by the way.
0: Hmm. And and speaking of the positive illusions, you were saying that when, when we were talking about the you know more enduring attachment uh, as an important thing. So that's basically yes. There's always going to be something in your partner that you don't adore. You know that not no one comes right. to you perfectly suited for you. Um, and it's about just redirecting your mind. Yes, that's there. There's no reason to dwell on that. There are so many reasons you selected this person. Go dwell there.
1: Perfect. And that's exactly what I do. I think well, you know such and such, but oh man, is he funny! Oh, he's hilarious! He's so good in bed. Da 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 It's easy to remember. The you know, it's easy to 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 make a good relationship. Got to start by picking the right person, but uh, then I don't think it's worth. Tell Bill hmm. Maher that.
0: <laughs> well, you know what you mentioned about you know you think you know what you want, and so you overweight the things that you know. Um, I remember when I got together with Doug, my husband, and Doug is my second marriage. I had a starter marriage to a nice guy, Dan, but we weren't right for each other. And that ended in divorce. And we both are now happily married to other people. So I met Doug and I remember complaining when I was first dating Doug to my then therapist, Amy. I'm like, he's not like anyone I've ever dated. And she's like, how is that a complaint? She's like, (laughs) how did those other relationships work out? I'm like... You have a good point. She said to me, (laughs) you asked the universe to send you something different. You know, when you first came to see me, it did. Will you listen? And I was like, oh, my gosh, she's so right. It's just a matter of being open minded to this new person who's coming to me in like a totally different package and with different mannerisms and with different ideas than anything I'm used to. That's so
1: good. And you know what I say? You want a person who opens doors for you instead of closes them. And that was the problem with Bill Meyer. You know, um, he feels that everything, everybody that he's going to talk to is going to close doors. You've got to have somebody who's going to c- continually open doors intellectually, uh, physically, emotionally, uh, in all kinds of ways. And they are out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Funny, too. Another story about Doug, when we were dating, it was like a first date. I was like, how tall are you? You're tall. And he said, uh, six, two. And I said, really, you seem taller than that. And he said, that's because I'm actually six, two <laughs> to, your po- <laughs> to your point about the men lying about their height. <laughs> oh, that's very cute. It's yeah. just very cute. I
1: just remember when, you know, when my husband, when I first, you know, got to know him, he walked in and uh, uh, I was playing some Beethoven and I he said, what's that? And I said, oh, it's Beethoven something. And he said, Oh, I hear he's good. And I Mm -hmm. thought to myself, oh, God, this guy doesn't know Beethoven? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And then I realized after a while, he was completely joking. Yes, of course. I hadn't gotten his sense of humor yet. Uh, uh, And uh, I mean, he was just being droll and et cetera. Yeah, you got to get to know somebody. And all the data show that you get, you know, the more you get to know somebody, the more you like, but you got to give them a chance. Think of reasons to say, Yes. Yes.
0: Now, wait, can I ask you? So you said you got married at age 75?
1: Yeah. Isn't that something?
0: And had you ever been married prior to that?
1: I was married for about three months when I was 23, and I didn't want to marry him when I went down the aisle, but I was so scared of my mother that I didn't dare. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the The bottom line is since then, I've I've lived with two other men, both of them for over about 20 years, and I was crazy about both men. Uh, But for some reason, I, I didn't want to marry them. And uh, this one, I would have married this guy, uh, John, his name is, I would have married him at any age. He's the right guy.
0: Well, I've I've heard you say that you've done some studying that suggests a a lot of people are living together longer in today's day and age because they're afraid. They're afraid. It's not because they're commitment phobes. It's that they don't want to make the wrong choice and go through the dissolution of a marriage and all the stuff that comes with it is that was that something you could relate to personally or you, you know, cause two 20 year r- romances that didn't lead to marriage, people might, you know, wonder what, why, what was the choice there?
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, well, I do want to tell you, uh, um, you you're raising a much larger and very interesting question, but in terms of me, the first man was 22 years older and mm-hmm. I already thought he drank too much. So I thought that's not going to work. You know, um, he was fascinating guy. I mean, and hilariously funny and extremely charming and very dedicated to me, but I just thought the age difference was in the long run might not work. And um, I, I put him in his grave and I was very, you know, I was, I, I, I after we broke up, uh, uh, he, he, did quit drinking, which was fine. And we, we came into solid friends and, and I, I buried him myself. So it was a wonderful relationship from beginning to end, but it had a couple, you know, potholes that I didn't think I could get through. And the second one a fascinating man. Uh, we saw most of the world together. I've been to North Korea with him. I've been to the highlands in New wow. Guinea. He wanted to see every country in the world. And um, I've been all over the world with him, and it was uh, wonderful. But there was, there was, there was things I didn't trust. And uh, I would have married him, but uh, anyway, bottom line is I'm a happy happy camper, but you've raised something else that's really important. Um, Whereas I got it all with this one, and if if it's Mm -hmm. possible, and certainly I did. But anyway, the bottom line is, yes, we are marrying later. And I call it slow love. I wrote an academic article on it. You know, 50 years ago, people married in their early 20s. Now they're marrying in their late 20s or early 30s. And what we're seeing is what I call slow love, this long period of pre-commitment in which people, particularly the young, but of all ages, uh, are trying things out getting rid of what they don't want learning more about themselves trying things out but they i tell you the young I, i'm crazy about millennials as i've said you know they de, they develop this term dtr define the relationship they don't go into these things they they'll have their one night stands and they'll have their friends with benefits but if they don't think this is going somewhere they go they get out they oh. they have that discussion to define the relationship they sort things out and they leave or they stick it out to to go to the next stage. So bottom line is we're marrying much later. And the reason that this is wonderful is I've looked in 80 cultures through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations. And my data goes from 1947 to 2011, so whole different time periods in world history. And over and over, the later you marry, the more likely you are to remain together. And I also have um, Mm. a data, not personally, but a, a study that I've read, about 300 Americans. And once again, the longer you court and the later you wed, the more likely you are to remain together. And so I really do think as we are marrying later and later, what I call slow love, I do think that we're Mm -hmm. going to see a continuation of relative family stability. Did you know that the divorce rate today is less than it has been in the last 50 years? The divorce rate is wow. really quite low. Uh, I mean, some people are always going to divorce. And by the way, some people should. I mean, if you are being beaten up every time, yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to go. But the bottom line is uh, uh, um, I, I do think that particularly the young, the young are very serious about, uh, about romance. They want to get it right. And they're going to marry much later. And they're going to walk down those aisles. When they do, they're going to know who they've got. They're going to know they want who they got and they think they're going to know that
0: hmm. they're going to keep who they've got. But I know you've be- also you've also pointed out that it's not it's not like they're just doing a like a contractual approach to it. It's not like they're being measured and they're looking at the list of qualities and they're making it. Because I know I've read that you 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 say something to the effect of over 90 percent of women, over 85 percent of men all say if if a person had everything I wanted on paper, But I did not feel in love with them. I would not marry them.
1: Oh, Megan, I thank you for doing your homework. That's a beautiful thing. Um, yes, Uh, those are two of my very favorite questions. You know, I do this Singles in America study annually with Match. I've got data on over 55,000 Americans. It's a huge study now. It's an honest study. It's real science. And those are my two favorite questions. Would you form a long-term committed relationship with somebody who you did not find sexually attractive? That's one. And the second question, uh, would you form a long-term commitment with somebody who you uh, who had, had everything you were looking for, but you did not. You were not in love with them. And what was interesting to me is the people least likely to compromise were people over 60. It's the mm-hmm. young who are going to compromise and end up marrying somebody who was who they're not necessarily sexually um, crazy about or not in love with. And I thought at first, well, this is weird. But you know, it's the young that have to reproduce. And if you find the perfect Mm. girl, she's very good with all your friends. She's just one. She'll be a wonderful mother. Uh, You you find her hilariously funny. uh, You find her or him very interesting to talk to, but you don't have that real zip of passion. The young are more likely to make that commitment anyway. For good Darwinian evolutionary reasons, you've got to pick a partner who can, um, you know, who can um, uh, give you healthy babies. And, and help you uh, raise
2: them.
0: That is a good point. Yeah. All right, I have to round back to one awkward uh, statement that I just got to follow up on. Forgive me. When you say you you put you buried your first partner there yourself, that you literally put him in his grave, you don't like, you just mean you were with him when he died and you took care of the funeral arrangement. I scattered his ashes too. Oh, wow. Okay. So it yeah. was like you were, yeah, hands on.
1: Yeah, hands on. It was very strange. I cannot tell you how bizarre it is because I, his daughter wanted to scatter some too. And so she came over to my house and I put some newspaper out on my desk and I dumped all these bones out. And I looked at myself, what? what are you doing?
2: Bones? I a of
1: bones? Your... You know, I mean, it's, it's Helen, very what it's saying? I- I think death is very arresting. Of course, we all do. But, uh, you know, I mean, at least a baby gets built for nine months. And you get used to this. But anyway, yeah, no, I adored him. He was just absolutely oh, wonderful. For can me.
0: We get, forgive me. I don't mean to like, but what? I, like, wait, are you telling me that when they give you the ashes, if, if you pour them out, there's more than ash in there? Well,
1: it was, yeah, ch- little chunks of bone. I scattered my, oh my father's God. ashes, too. And uh, and that was very meaningful. In a trout stream, he was a wonderful... He was in, in management at uh, Time Magazine, and I adored him. And, um, yeah, everybody else left after the funeral, and I went and found a trout stream. And I've never told anybody this. I mean, even in my personal life. But maybe your guests will be bored silly, but the bottom line is I sang a Navajo poem and I found a trout stream and and, uh, dumped the ashes in. And it was very arresting because the wind blew and the ashes sort of went into my, onto my face and hair Oh and Helen. So, but anyway, the bottom line is, yeah, there's good men out there, by the way, back to your son for just a minute, mm-hmm. um, who as a young boy was in, infatuated with, <laughs> with somebody in his fourth. You know, men fall in love faster than women do. They fall in do love more often than women do. Yeah, I believe it actually. Uh, and,
0: pardon me? I believe it. Yeah. At first I was like, really? But then I'm thinking it through. Yeah. I do believe it.
1: They, when they do find somebody that they're in love with, they want to introduce them to friends and family sooner. Uh, in anthropology, we call that mate guarding. But anyway, uh, they want to move in sooner. Men have more intimate conversations with their partners than women do with their partners. Wait, no, wait, But there.
0: is that because and I'm not an anthropologist, but uh, or as I like to say, anthropologist. Um, but is that because <laughs> this is my anecdotal shot at it? You know, women tend to be talkers and we have a lot of emotional targets in our life, receptacles and so on. And we're used to just our feelings and men maybe less so. And so it's like, yes, I have an outlet for all these feelings. And I don't know. That's my guess. But what what is the reason for that? Well
1: done. Well done. I I think it's true. Uh, But uh, women are also the picky sex. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, they've got a lot to lose. I mean, for millions of years, they not only had to carry that baby for nine months, you know, in the womb, but then uh, delivering it was very dangerous. And then everywhere in the world, more women uh, spend time raising children under the age of four. Now, men also do it, too. But for millions of years, men went out hunting dangerous animals in order to come home with some food and also protected the the nu- little nuclear family and the and the community. So men were doing their jobs, but the hands-on caring of very young children everywhere in the world, even in cultures where women are extremely economically and socially sexually powerful, they spend more time uh, but uh, with, the, with the very young. So the bottom line is... Every year um, I do this study with match and uh, every year uh, I see that men are are more um, are, are less picky women are the mm. picky sex for good Darwinian evolutionary reasons they got more yes, child um, uh, uh yeah. Uh, uh, things I got to do,
0: responsibility. All right. So now there, there's so much more to go over, including uh, these are the four basic brain systems. We're going to squeeze in a break. And then when we come back, I'm going to ask Dr. Helen Fisher about the four basic brain systems that she says will, will sort of classify, whether you're an explorer, a builder, a director, or a negotiator. And there are tests to figure out which one you are. And it will tell you about if not who to choose as your mate, maybe how to navigate the relationship once you have chosen uh, and to get over certain problems or to sort of work your synergies together. It literally is science. You thought love was, you know, all emotion. It's not. She's studied it. She's done the brain scans and uh, we'll pick it up there right after this break when we do more with Helen Fisher. And remember, you can find The Megan Kelly Show live on SiriusXM, XM Triumph Channel, 111, every weekday at noon east. The full video show and clips by subscribing to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Kelly. If you prefer an audio podcast, subscribe and also please download on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts for free. And there you can check out our full archives. Some great, great history there with more than 260 shows. So Helen, uh, before we get to the four sort of types of personalities, just to to short form it, I wanted to round back on the other two things that I, because I really did love this and you you put it in your times piece. Um, It was about keeping your partnership happy. And we talked about positive illusions, focus on the stuff that you do like, don't dwell on the things you don't, that does no good. And by the way, that's, that's a key for happiness in general. You know, every, I, I tell my kids this, you know, whenever they get, super upset about something that doesn't really matter. It's like, does that need to be your upset? You know, is there something else going great in your life right now that you can focus on? Because you and this is actually one of the other points. You want them to be empathetic. You want them to feel for people who are in trouble or in, in need without letting it really pierce their own heart and happiness. It's a delicate balance. But your other two points were um, you do need um Empathy with your partner. And you do need to control your own stress and emotions. That's a challenge for a lot of people, right? Controlling your stress and emotions when you're dealing with a person who's not supposed to be leaving you, right? So this is a person in front of whom you're supposed to, well, frankly, be your worst self at times. Well, I think there's
1: more tricks to this trade. And uh the one th- the other things that I would say is uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, do you try to be your worst self around your girlfriends or do you try to be your worst self around work? I mean, this is you know, you've just won life's greatest prize, which is a mating partner and a life partner. It's worth respecting that every day, mm-hmm. you know, as I mean, it was Confucius who said the way out is through the door and people can take the way out. And I I do think that it's very worth um, just simply understanding that uh, it's one day at a time or it is for me. Uh, And um, I mean, even if you're married and with small children, uh, uh, it's worth really respecting this person. But anyway, I just want to say some other things. If in a long-term good partnership, I think what I would do is try to keep all three of these basic brain systems alive: sex drive, feelings of intense romantic love, and feelings of deep attachment. So, want to keep the sex drive alive? Have sex. Um, you know, it drives up the testosterone system, and you want to have more sex. The less you have, less you want. The more you have, the more you want. And sex is very good for you. Uh, it can trigger feelings of romantic love, any kind of stimulation of the genitals that can drive up that dopamine system and sustain feelings of romantic love. And with the uh, orgasm, uh, there's a real flood of oxytocin linked with feelings of attachment. So when you trigger the sex drive, you're not only helping with the sex drive, which is very good for the body and the mind, if you like the person, um, but it's also good for triggering romantic love and feelings of attachment. So we talked about it before. In terms of romantic love, novelty, novelty, novelty. Do novel things together. And Mm -hmm. the third, you want to uh, sustain feelings of deep attachment with somebody. Um, The thing to do is to um, stay in touch walk arm in arm, hold hands, kiss. When you kiss somebody who you know well, drives up oxytocin in the brain, gives you feelings of attachment. Get rid of the two armchairs and sit on the same couch together to watch television so that you're Mm. in touch. Uh, Learn to at least start the evening um, uh, sleeping in the person's arms. Uh, uh, which also will drive up the oxytocin. So stay in touch. Get all three of these basic brain systems, um, going for you. And last but not least, this is really strange, but apparently they now say, this is not my data. Uh, it's good academic data. Say nice things to your partner. Um, and what that does actually is it drives up the, it reduces cortisol, the stress hormone. Uh, it, uh, uh reduces cholesterol. Uh, it uh, reduces blood pressure. Uh, And it boosts the immune system, not only in them, but in you. So keep all three of these basic brain systems alive uh, uh, and, uh, and say nice things. This is what the brain says. Now, I mean, if you want to just talk about what psychologists say, uh, I think the best um, uh, ideas are um, uh, are that of, excuse uh, me, that of, um, oh, lord, I've forgotten his name at the moment, um, Gottman, John Gottman. He says, you know, don't show contempt, uh, don't criticize, uh, don't be defensive, and don't um, just stonewall it and just listen and, and don't say anything. So there's but you got to pick the right person. <laughs> you do yeah, all those things happened. with the wrong person, it won't work.
0: <laughs> I'll tell you what, I sent my husband a text just today that I don't think he'll mind, but I read, uh, I just want you to know you're hot, sexy, you're smart, and I'm so glad I married you. And he wrote back, I'm the lucky one. Aww. Oh, you know,
1: wonderful. Tiger. And that's, I got the same thing from mine. He said that he was the lucky one. And I wrote back and I said, man, I'm the lucky one. <laughs> you
0: know what? It's like, and it, it's not that there are no good guys out there because I were good gals. Because I know a lot of people feel like, oh, shut up. You found the only one. That's how I felt before I met Doug. But there are ways of picking somebody who will work for you, even in this sea of crowded people who you feel like none of them is right for you. There, there's actually some science behind what might work well for you. And thankfully, we have the woman who's done that research, Dr. Helen Fisher, as our guest today. We'll pick it up right there after this quick break. Are you an explorer, builder, director or negotiator when it comes to love? So first of all, just set the stage. What are these four things and how can they be useful to us in understanding?
1: Well, this all started, you know, when Match came to me 16 years ago and they asked me, why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And I said to them, "Um, well, you know, there's all kinds of things that we we already know. Uh, We do tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic and ethnic background, same general level of intelligence and good looks and education, uh, somebody with your religious and social values. And somebody with your economic and reproductive goals. So there's a lot of cultural things. But, you know, you can walk into a room and everybody is from your background and level of education, good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. So I began to think, okay, about 50% of who you are does come out of your biology. I mean, we know that some people are better at math. Some are better at uh, singing on tune. Some are better at shooting a basketball, et cetera, et cetera. So I began to think to myself, Hmm, why don't I take a look at the biology of personality, the second half of that puzzle? Because people will say, well, we have chemistry or we don't have chemistry. Are we naturally drawn to some people rather than others? So anyway, I looked through uh, 40 years of biological literature and I found all kinds of systems in the brain, but most of them keep the heart beating or the eyes blinking. They're not linked with any personality trait. But there are four basic brain systems each one of them is linked with a constellation a suite a bunch of personality traits the dopamine serotonin testosterone and estrogen system so i created this questionnaire that you've just mentioned it's called the fisher temperament in uh, inventory you can get it in any of my books or even on some of my websites certainly all over the internet anyway um And um, people were very expressive of the traits in the dopamine system I call, as Megan, you mentioned, explorers. These people are risk-taking, novelty-seeking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, mentally flexible people. And they're drawn to people like themselves. Explorers go for explorers. The second style of thinking and behaving is like with the serotonin system. These people I call builders. Not a great term, but 15 million people have taken my questionnaire, so I'm not stuck with it. But anyway, the bottom line is these people are traditional, conventional They follow the rules, they respect authority, they're detail-oriented, they tend to be religious, but not always, loyalty is very important to them. uh, And they're also drawn to people like themselves. A good example is Mike Pence, Another good example would be I think Queen Elizabeth or Mike uh, Mitt uh, Romney uh, they're traditional people drawn to people like themselves in those two styles of thinking and behaving you're linked they're drawn to their similarity in the other two cases people are drawn to their opposite high testosterone what I call directors are drawn to high estrogen uh, negotiators and vice versa so <clears throat> excuse me if you're very high on the testosterone system, Directors, and this is women as well as men, Margaret Thatcher is a good example, I think Hillary Clinton actually is very high testosterone. These people, they're analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, good at things like math, engineering, computers music is very spatial, and they're drawn to their opposite, the negotiators, the high estrogen, people who see the big pictures, see long-term, holistic, contextual thinkers, imaginative people, uh, people who are good at reading posture, gesture, tone of voice, people who are trusting and compassionate. So the bottom line is there are four styles of thinking and behaving. In two cases, similarity attracts, and in two cases, opposites attract. But the important thing is... Unlike any other questionnaire on the market, this questionnaire measures how you are in all four of them, and then gives you the printout. We're not the brain doesn't work in buckets. You're not this or that. So, for mm-hmm. example, I am really an explorer negotiator, and I would guess that Megan, you are too. But anyway, um, and so my husband is an explorer like me, high dopamine, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, works perfectly. He's higher on testosterone, and I'm higher on estrogen. Also works. Perfectly, he's higher on the serotonin system. He's more inclined to follow a rule just because it's a rule than I am. I mean, I'll follow a rule. I don't want to be roadkill. I follow the rules of the road. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't make sense to me, I'm not inclined to do it. And and he's more inclined. So then you have to figure out a workaround around. Uh, and one example in our our life is, uh, you know, he we were going to the movies, and um, I said, sweetheart, uh, do you have any uh, water in your backpack? And he said, oh yeah. And I said, well, we could drink it in the movie house. And he said, no, you can't. You can't bring food or drink into a movie house. You'd better buy it at the concession stand. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> so what do you do? You buy it at a concession stand. The problem is so many people see the, the, the problems in their relationship is it's about me. It's not always about me. It could be who this person is. And
0: once you understand that, you can respect it. And you can find a workaround, right? Like like uh, I heard you saying in one interview, if you have somebody who just never wants to leave the house, I mean, they're just agoraphobic or they just they just hate going outside. They love their routine. And you're more of an adventurer where you want to explore and you want to see you know the world and you want to try new restaurants. You know, it, it doesn't bode very well. You can try it. to find workarounds, but mm, you yeah. should be smart going into it. that That's going to yeah. be a big challenge.
1: Way out is through the door, you know. Uh, I do some uh, clinical work. I would say I'm not a psychologist, but they come to me because they want to know this material. And this couple came to me. They were dying to uh, be married. They weren't sure whether they should marry each other. And it's exactly what you just explained. She wanted to open a nail salon. That's an entrepreneur. And in her spare time, she liked to do rock climbing. He wanted to, and she wanted to have sex every night. He wanted to have sex every two weeks. In his spare time, he wanted to watch television. And he worked at one of uh, New York's um, um, uh, um, airports, uh, stamping passports, which is a very rote Mm. Uh, lack of imagination, detail-oriented job. And I, I couldn't see how this marriage would, could work. And unfortunately, they did not marry and he ended up coming back and finding somebody like himself. So yes, I, I, I've learned a great deal you know, uh, from discovering these styles of thinking and behaving. Once you understand them, you see them everywhere. I mean, for example, with Mike Pence, I was positive that that man would go in and ratify or, or you know, uh, the uh, electoral college votes because he follows the rules. That's who he is. That's oh, what he's made. It.
0: You know, I, so I took the test and I am a negotiator. Is my, That's my rising sign. <laughs> really, uh, it's not okay. astrological. I'm a rising negotiator, but my main thing was a director. And uh, oh, one well, of the weird things in taking the test was, I remember taking the direct because the way Helen does the test is you sort of take four of them and they ask you questions that would, you know, if you have a very high score on one, that's probably going to be the one if if it outweighs the others. Anyway, I remember taking the the one that seemed to be asking if I were if I were a director and I had extremes. It was like no to the math, no to the science, you know, no to being a strong decision maker. But I was really strong on some of the other category some of the other traits I'm trying to pull up what they were here it is um that i that i did agree with testosterone system um analytical and strategic thinking 100% um tough minded direct decisive yes i agreed with all that right so it was like i had a very strong pull to many of its characteristics and a very negative pull so i'm like i don't know what this makes me
1: well it sounds like you've got those traits that you are you know that you are strategic and uh, you said tough minded, um, uh, but not good at math. I mean, nobody has all of the traits of all of them, uh, uh, but
0: we've got some more than others. Wait, so, am I, so I guess negotiator isn't my rising. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. The negotiator was my husband's rise arising. Uh, That's it. I was director explorer rising and he was director negotiator rising. OK, and, but Perfect. Doug's, explain Doug's to me because he's 67 percent director and then he's like basically 60, 62 or 64 percent on everything else. He's just all 60s.
1: Uh, You know, you can have a lot of traits in each of these four systems. By the way, I've studied, you know, 15 million people have taken this questionnaire in 40 countries, and and, uh, I've studied 100,000 of them uh, here and there, and I've never found two people who answered that question. Questionnaire the same way, and I've never met two people who are alike. And I'm an identical twin, and even the two of us are not exactly alike. No two people are. But what's really cool is okay, you're both high on Explorer.
0: Hmm. Well, but so we're both directors. He's his rising is negotiator. And my rising is Explorer. Right. I think that's I have I finally said so right? His test is so, right next to mine, so that's why I'm screwing it up. So wait, I'm looking huh. at mine for sure. Director sixty-two percent, and the next highest is explorer that's me
1: okay that's you explorer director
0: or director explorer testosterone and
1: and and dopamine and he is dopamine and estrogen
0: and he is number one is director and Uh number two just by a smidge is negotiator but explorer and builder are close thereafter
1: okay so about 13 percent of people will respond uh uh, quite equally on them all. Um, that's probably, mm. I don't know what he does for a living, but uh, that's probably pretty good. A writer. Yeah. Ah, that's, it, that's where the estrogen is. Oh. Um, so what's interesting is your director and his negotiator, the, you're the, but he's also high on, well, do you, uh, this there's two directors that could cause some trouble well, so that's Are a funny there?
0: thing I, I heard I've heard you say that like director or director that t- that director tends to want the opposite and we're two directors but it, we're very like the things that I guarantee you i I was like no in he was a yes I, I haven't seen his test but he was good at science he he is good at math he is a very good decision maker he's strong like yes, this is what we should do and I'm more like ah. I don't know. We'll figure it out. You know, he's more like (laughs) let's make the schedule, and I'm more like hey, yeah, whatever. You know, so he's he's sort of more regimented in that way and strong in terms of like his approach to like this is what we should do, and this and I'm way more sort of B like in that in those categories, Um, Mm -hmm. but like professionally, I'm. I'm very driven, I'm very analytical, I'm very logical, I'm very confrontational, I'm very direct, like all those things that we're factoring in there. That's very cool. You know, so somehow it balances, it works.
1: That's, you know, it's very interesting. I wish you, what I'll do is I'm going to send you my second generation questionnaire because I ask you to take this question, it's called the NeuroColor questionnaire, Um, at work and outside of work. And it'll be very interesting because you were saying at work you you're tough minded, you're, you're decision making you're just focused, and that's probably why you've had such a wonderful career, mm. you know uh, but and at I home wonder, i'm not
0: I'm not as much
1: yeah, that's right, and by the way, I've often asked people, you know which is the real you and um which both, is the real you
0: they're both real I don't know it's like uh-huh. i I care like the things I care are deeply about the news, but like do I really care deeply you know which particular Softball league, the kid is in? Nah, not really. Like, yeah. it, like what, as they get older and those things start to matter more, I'll care more. But for the most part, like, I don't get obsessed over, you know, what Junior's going to be doing for, you know, two weeks in July. Like, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't put my energy there. I think that's there. the
1: explorer in you. I think the explorer is, you know, live and let live, uh, uh, you know, let's be relaxed about this, et cetera, et cetera. But um, which is more tiring for you
0: at work or at home? Ah, uh, that's funny uh well oh, which personality style
1: the director or the negotiator which is or yeah which is more because i always ask this now for example when i ask people at deloitte um um uh, uh home is more tiring because they can really be themselves at work mm. um in a um I did a speech in Singapore uh, some time ago and it was a lot of women working for Axo Nobel which is a paint and finishing company and almost everybody is a real high powered engineer and these women said at work i've got to do that tough minded in a strategic you know world but i can really be myself at home so it's valuable to know, you know, which is more tiring. I mean, we can I, we can act out of character. Helen, I feel like, Helen, just- I feel like
0: I've, I've achieved stasis on that front. You know, I probably would have given you a different answer about 10 years ago where my job exhausted me. It was just never stopped. It just nonstop and very demanding. And, you know, there were when I was on the air for that one hour, I loved it. But all the hours outside of that were just a grind. Now I'm in this place where it's good. I my work is not exhausting. It's fun. And I look forward to it. And my kids have aged up. So they're Mm -hmm. also not exhausting, you know, like back then, too, they were little and toddlers, like a four, a two and a newborn. That's hard. That is hard labor. Uh, So no wonder I was so unhappy during that particular portion of my life. (laughs) Anyway, now I'm good. Now I'm happy in both places.
1: Yeah, apparently middle age is the least happy. The younger, when I've done studies of this, the the very young are really quite happy. They're very optimistic. and You know, you get through middle age, which is very family and and very demanding. And then you get older.
0: I'm middle age. I'm 51. Uh, Well, your children are growing up, though,
1: now. And uh, you're sliding into... uh, to more and more happiness, I would think.
0: Mm. Am I crossing over into elderly? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> no, I certainly
1: wouldn't. I'm a lot older than you, and I don't feel even slightly elderly.
0: <laughs> We're middle aged for a long
1: time these days. You know, it's just a beautiful mm. thing. All mm. every age group is expanded. Childhood is expanded, and although I actually think the pandemic's changed that, uh, uh, middle age has expanded and uh, senior citizens has expanded. A lot of people think that middle age should now be up to age 85 unless you've got some sort of real problem. But what's interesting is, you know, I just did this study with Match um, last August, and I found a historic change in the young. Uh, What they are now is what I call post-traumatic growth. They have grown up. The bad boy, the bad girl are out. What they want now is emotional maturity. And sure enough, in 2019... 58% Fifty-eight percent of singles uh, wanted a partner who wanted to marry. Today, seventy-six percent want a partner who wants to marry. Now, I think they'll still do this slow love, long period of living together before they settle down. But um, I think we, I think that. Uh, uh, we're going to see more and more uh, stability in, in partnerships. No kid. I don't think that 51 is ancient. I, I think he's still
0: a kid. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating though. Do you, so do you think then that, you know, cause we've been writing and talking about the low birth rates in America yeah. over the past couple of years, and it feels kind of pessimistic. And, you know, you look at the younger generation like that, have they given up on family? They're just not going to get married. They're not going to do what we all did, which is get married and have a couple of kids. Do you believe They will get married and they probably will have kids.
1: I'm positive they will get all of our data, uh, uh, suggests that they are going to settle down. Yes. Hmm. Um, I do not think that they're going to have a lot of kids. And in fact, this last very smart of you to ask, um, you know, this is only a few months ago, middle of this pandemic, and we asked whether you wanted to have a partner who wanted to have children. Prior to the pandemic, about 80% said, yes, I do not only want to get married, but I want to have children. Um, and just a, a few months ago, 61%, a 19% plummet. And how many children that they want to have. But what's interesting to me about this as an anthropologist, you know, for millions of years we lived in these little hunting and gathering groups. Women tended to have four or five children during the course of their lives, and often, absolutely regularly, only one or two lived to adulthood. Um, and so, uh, it was just replacement uh, level. Then we began to settle down on the farm about 10,000 years ago. And women's job was to have babies who so could pick the vegetables, uh, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so um, as we move farther and farther from our agrarian background, uh, we're moving forward to the past back to the kinds of relationships actually in which women are extremely powerful a double income family and uh the desire to have fewer children because uh people today believe that uh uh, that the child will live to adulthood the other thing is children are very expensive these days. I mean, you know, I mean, just even buying bicycles and computers. But uh, one estimate was you spend over $250,000 on a child before it goes to, I don't know whether it was high school or college, but anyway, Easily. it's a very expensive. Um,
0: I agree so with I, I will take think... a guess. I, I'm going to hazard a guess that during the pandemic, all these people got puppies. They got a COVID dog. They realized mm-hmm. how hard it is just to deal with that. And they said, forget it. And you can't return the <laughs> child.
1: <laughs> I think they'll have one or two, but I, they're not going to go back to the farming life. You know, I mean... Uh, I mean, for millions of years, women commuted to work to gather their fruits and vegetables. They came home with 60 to 80 percent of the evening meal. The double income family was the rule. And women were regarded as just as sexually, socially and economically powerful as men. Then we settled down on the farm. Men's jobs became much more important, uh, moving the rocks, selling the trees, plowing the land, taking the local produce off to market and coming home with the equivalent of money. And Mm -hmm. along with that, we see the rise of, with the farming tradition, the belief that a woman's place is in the home, virginity at marriage, Man's the head of the household until death do us part. You know, on the farm, what are you going to do? You can't cut cut the cow in half to leave it, move it out of town. You can't move the half the wheat field out of town. And so, there was a tremendous a, a need for lifelong care bonding. And the farther we get away from that, the more women are moving into the job market. As a matter of fact, of all of the current trends that much more powerful than the trend of of more technology is women piling into the job market in cultures around the world. And, um, And that is changing love. That's one of the main reasons we're marrying later we're having fewer children and we're going forward to the kinds of relationships that we had for millions of years. Economically powerful women, double income family, fewer children, people leaving unhappy partnerships in order to make happy ones. So and and of course, women are more interesting than they've ever been. I'm mm-hmm. I'm
0: real, real optimist about the future. I love that. I agree with that. Women are more interesting than they've ever been. They have so much opportunity available to them. So many lanes in which they can participate in so many avenues of gaining new information. And the more interested you are, the more interesting you become. Up next, here's what I'm interested in. Um, cheating, right? Why do people do it? And is there love after doing it? And can you fall out of love? You know, people who have unrequited love need to fall out of love. How do you do that scientifically? Dr. Helen Fisher with that right after this. Is it possible to be deeply in love and have attachment to someone and then to have romantic love with somebody else?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, these three basic brain systems can really work together. Sex drive, romantic love and feelings of deep attachment. But not always. You know, you can lie in bed at night and feel deep sense of attachment to one person while you feel a sense of intense romantic love for somebody else, while you can have the sex drive for somebody who you barely know. Hmm. Um, And that's a pickle. And we all want to walk down the aisle and sustain all three brain systems with the person you are married to or (laughs) in a
0: long-term partnership with. But it doesn't always happen. And uh, So is that uh, why people uh, cheat? Because they feel the sex drive pointing one way or the romantic love pointing one way where they've already made an attachment?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I mean, I've studied um, adultery in uh, 42 cultures around the world. And if you ask people why they're adulterous, they'll say, Well, I wanted to supplement my marriage. I wanted to get caught and break up my marriage. I wanted to get caught and rebuild my marriage. I got bored when my partner was out of town. I wanted revenge. I wanted to solve a sex problem. I want people to laugh at my jokes. Uh, I I feel entitled because uh, I make much more money. I feel entitled because I'm higher status. I, I, I tend to work with people with my hands. And so I get into these. If you ask people, there's a million. They'll all give you a different reason for why they are adulterous. But what's interesting to me is how many people are. Now, it's very difficult to know how many people are. The data goes back to the 1920s when about a third of men and about a quarter of women reported that they were adulterous. These days, it depends on the, how you phrase the question and who you ask. So it's very difficult to know. But what's remarkable is how many people end up being adulterers, even where in places where you could get your head chopped off for it. Wow. So in spite of all the psychological reasons for adultery, I began to think to myself, well, what would be the evolutionary, why is this adaptive? I mean, you know, you fall in love, you have a family, you get a good job, you get good neighbors, you, you've got a stability. Why would you jeopardize all that? And so from a Darwinian perspective, now this isn't psychology, this is from a dark, what would be the payoffs that would have evolved so that the human brain is predisposed to cheat? And here's the, some of the going theories, mine and others I think agree with me. Um, Let's go back a million years. If a man has a wife, great, two children, wonderful, and he slips over the hill now and then and has sex with another woman and has two extra children with her, he's doubled the amount of DNA he has sent into tomorrow. So he is one. One. And of course, he's going to be passing along whatever it is in the brain. And we now know some of those things uh, that uh, predisposes you to adultery. But why would a woman be adulterous? A lot of my colleagues say, well, you know, men aren't women aren't adulterous. Well, guess what? Who are all these men sleeping with? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but the bottom line is that actually the data today shows that people under 40 uh, women are just as adulterous as men. So why would a woman a million years ago be adulterous? Can't have a new baby with every single one she uh, has sex with. But she could get extra support. She could get an insurance policy. You know, her husband is, is eaten by a lion and she's got somebody to step in and help her with the children that she's got. That's good. Or she travels to other villages. and uh, I mean, other hunting and gathering groups and and somebody gives her meat or beads or what it helps to support her, makes her more healthy, more able to raise the children that she has. So for evolutionary reasons, over millions of years, there were payoffs by forming a partnership with one individual and being adulterous on the side. And I think what we've evolved is what I call a dual human reproductive strategy, a tremendous drive to fall in love, form a partnership, and raise our babies as a team, and also a predisposition uh, for the roving eye. And of course, then we all decide whether we're gonna do something about this. What's interesting to me is there was a study in the 1980s, but it astonished me. They asked the question of people who were adulterous, were you in a happy or very happy marriage? And 56% of men said yes. They were in a happy marriage when they were adulterous. And 34% of women said yes. So this points to the fact that for millions of years, no matter what your psychology is, for millions of years, there was some payoffs for adultery. And in fact, for men, it's probably more babies. And for women, it's more resources for the babies they've got, leaving us with this Tremendous drive for autonomy and also a tremendous drive uh, uh, to commit. And then each one of us faces this and makes decisions.
0: Right. So how do you, so going, you as a newlywed yourself and anybody out there thinking about getting married is hoping, I think, at, at least at the beginning, that they won't cheat, that their partner won't cheat. How do you try to tamp down those biological instincts, needs, you know, histories?
1: Well, I think a lot of people have already, these days, because they're marrying so much later, they've already gone through all that. That's another beauty of marrying so much later. They've learned, uh, you know, uh, what they're really looking for, and, and they've found it. Um, in fact, adultery has um, decreased uh, uh, since their farming background, because in the past, you couldn't divorce. And so um, men, particularly, would have a wife at home and, uh, and then have another woman in the village. Because they couldn't divorce these days, a woman won't put up with that, and so uh, you know they will divorce instead. They've got the, they have the resources to do that, and will go on and find somebody that they can trust. But what's interesting about adultery is there is some genetics to it now. Just because they're predis- predisposed doesn't mean they're determined. I mean, you can have some of the genetics for alcoholism and give up alcohol. You're going to have some of the genetics for eating too much, and yet you you control your weight. So the bottom line is... Even Wait, are you the- saying
0: like a gen- genetics as in, oh, his dad cheated, so he's going to cheat?
1: The genetics, um, what they have found is a certain gene in the dopamine system, uh, The the or the DRD47 repeat allele for anybody's listening to on that wow. level. Um, and people, those people tend to be more restless and have more uh, sexual uh, uh, encounters with other people. Oh, There's awesome. a gene in the vasopressin system. Uh, they've not only studied it in 552 men, uh, but also in other animals, uh, other creatures, um, the prairie vole. And uh, as it turns out, if you've got none of that gene. you can have no 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 copies one copy or two copies those men who had no copies had the most stable partnerships those who had one copy had less stable and those who had two copies had the least stable now this doesn't mean that just because you inherited that um that you're necessarily going to cheat there's all kinds of cultural things i mean an awful lot of people they're marrying much later they've had a million experiences with with adultery and they're done you know, uh, you know, you can overlook your predispositions. OK, so, also, so let uh, me she- as a
0: follow up on that. So if or, a man who doesn't want children, right, Like, yeah. let's say a man doesn't want children, would he have the same instinct to cheat as any other man, you know, who if it's like I need to spread my seed, you know, this biological thing, he doesn't really want to do that. But like because he's already an anomaly, right, if he doesn't right. if he doesn't want children.
1: Well, I, I mean, I would guess an awful lot of people who go on adulterers definitely do not want to have children. I mean, just because there's Darwinian underpinnings. I don't think the vast majority of people who, you know, have sex with somebody after the Christmas party uh, are intending to want to have children.
0: Um, to the contrary. They just
1: are, they're on the psychological level of, oh, we've just had a wonderful conversation and here I am. And, oh, well, uh, I'm not excusing them. But, um, but the bottom line is just because we have some uh predispositions doesn't mean that we are thinking about those predispositions i mean when you most people who are adults start thinking about the moment um you know that um i'm angry at my partner uh, uh i'm lonely when he's out of town or she's out of town uh, i want revenge or various psychological reasons that people say that they're adults but what the issue is so many people are adulterous in so many different cultures that there has got to have been for millions of years, some Darwinian payoffs. But I don't think that people are thinking of those Darwinian payoffs as that, you know, hopping into the sack with somebody.
0: Yeah. Well, you never know what's driving you, right? You just never know. We, we just interviewed a guy who was talking about how people don't want to express a contrary opinion in a group because they don't want to get culled from the herd. And that's a biological thing that we've developed over years and years is it's, it used to be very dangerous to get culled from the herd. So you, Beautiful, you know, you may beautiful. you may relate to the that that not wanting to express your opinion, but you have no idea that biological evolution dr- drove it. You know, like that's what's actually causing it. Except,
1: well, our craving for sugar. I mean, you, we couldn't get a lot of sugar for millions and millions. You know, some berries and some honey. and That was about it. And now we so we have this craving for sugar, and of course, we now live in a society where it's very difficult to avoid sugar. Mm. Uh, so the brain says, "Oh, this is great." taste buds are all there ready to jump in and enjoy it. And, and yet uh, now it can kill you. Whereas in the past, it probably could give you energy and keep you alive.
0: But I'm glad you brought up cravings well, and addiction because I know you've written a lot about this, that love is biological and it's found, if you study the brain as Helen has, in the same part of the brain that that drives cravings, that thirst, hunger. It's that basic a need and a drive. It's not just emotional it really is physical
1: well said kid i mean really and and the bottom line is when i was first putting people into the brain scanner with my colleagues lucy brown and others um i thought it was an emotion or a whole series of emotions which it is But the bottom line is when we put those people in the scanner, people were madly in love, just in love, rejected in love, and in love long term, we really found activity in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tick metal area, a brain region that actually makes dopamine and sends dopamine to many brain regions. But just like you said, that little factory that pumps out the dopamine that gives you that elation um, lies right next to a factory that orchestrates thirst and hunger. Thirst and hunger keep you alive today. Romantic love enables you to focus your mating energy on a particular individual and drive your DNA into tomorrow. So it is a drive and it is an addiction. And here's what I've not been able to convince any of my colleagues of this. I think at some point it evolved as a positive addiction giving us the ability to overlook just about everything to fall in love with somebody and send our DNA onto tomorrow. Now, it can also be a horribly negative addiction. I mean, people pine for love, they live for love, they kill for love, and they die for love. I mean, it can be a very powerful addiction. But the bottom line is, it comes out of brain circuits at the bottom of the brain, linked with drive, with craving, with focus, with motivation, with drive.
0: Mm, So that leads me to how do you get out of it? Right. Like in the unrequited love situation, the the husband leaves you, the wife takes off or, you know, the case of the guy who had the gal in the rickshaw. It was just you just never can get her to feel it in the first place. And you you <laughs> want to fall out of love. You don't you know, I remember watching that movie. um, Oh, uh, what was it called with um Greg Kinnear and Ashley Judd? And she wanted to fall out of love. She went to a doctor to see if she could get her amygdala taken out so she didn't have to have smells that reminded her of him, right? (laughs) Someone like you, someone like you. So what's? can you force yourself to fall out of love?
1: Well, first of all, it is an addiction. And um, when we put the people in the machine, we found that in all cases... A particular brain region called the nucleus accumbens, the tiny little factory in the middle of the head, um, uh, linked with all of the addictions become activated. This particular brain region becomes activated with all the substances, everything from heroin to nicotine to alcohol, uh, and all of the behavioral addictions uh, associated with um, oh, gambling or sex addiction, etc. Yeah. Uh, that brain region becomes active. So you really do have to treat it as an addiction to the- <coughs> You have to treat it as an addiction. Um, Throw out the cards and letters. Uh, Don't write. Don't call. Don't show up. Don't ask uh, the person's friends about the person. Go out and get some exercise. That'll drive up dopamine. Go get hugs uh, uh, from your friends. That'll drive up the oxytocin. Um, Do new things. Um, Don't lie down. Uh, I mean, there's somebody camping in your head. You got to get them out. Uh, and so you've got to distract yourself. And one of the, I mean, in the beginning, it's important to understand what what goes on. I mean, you know. The, oh, by the way, you know. I mean, when you're when you are addicted to this person, not only does this brain region. Also linked with craving, uh, obsessive craving, become active, but that same brain region triggers what they call the ability to start processing your gains and your losses. So when you've been dumped, one of the first things you naturally do is trying to figure out, geez, what did I gain out of this? What did I lose? Did I lose the dog and the cat? Did I lose children? Did I lose money? Did I lose neighbors? What do I do at Thanksgiving, uh, at the holidays? Uh, You're trying to assess the situation, but at some point. You've got to build a narrative, whether it's true or not, so that you've got your story and so that you can then throw it out. So I would treat it as an addiction and um, I would uh, build the story. But at some point, you've got to give the story up. Um, You know, I know one time I got dumped and friends were very sweet. They kept on asking, how are you feeling? And after a while, I realized, you know, every time I talk about this again, I'm just raising the ghost. Uh, so at some point you have to move on. And the bottom line is we have proven that time heals when we put people who were rejected in love into the brain scanner, those who uh, have been rejected about 17 months ago, as opposed to six months ago, showed less and less activity in a brain region linked with attachment. So time wow. does heal, but you have to help yourself out by treating it seriously as an addiction.
0: They say I, they actually may actually now that I think of it be from that very movie I just referenced. They say uh, time heals all wounds and time wounds all heals. Um, <laughs> the, we 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 put the little brain scan actually up on the on the screen. I just want to tell the audience who are going to watch this on YouTube what they're seeing. So it, it shows like a flare up in um, in the brain. Both of these are of a brain. That's on love. That's in love. Uh, a and B, and you can see sort of some firing up going on in both in both sides. And um, let's see, the one on the left shows a uh, ventral tegmental, tegmental area. area on the left, and the caudate nucleus on the right. Heightened right. activity in the VTA, uh, in particular, has been associated with all sorts of addictions: nicotine, alcohol, heroin, and so on. Each dose causing a fresh spike of dopamine. So that that brings us to The chemical manipulation we already do of some of these things, whether it's drinking or cocaine or, um, I mean, the serious drugs, heroin and so on. And then separately, but maybe not unrelated, antidepressants and the self-medicating that people do. So can you talk about how those affect the brain chemistry and may interfere with our ability indeed to love? That's one of the most important questions that
1: anybody ever asked me, and they rarely do. Um, you know, when you're madly in love, that little ventral tegmental area, the VTA is making do- making dopamine and pumping it out and sending it to many brain regions, giving you that elation, giddiness, euphoria, sleeplessness, um, intrusive thinking about the person, high motivation to win them, uh, sexual craving, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And when you take an SSRI uh, serotonin, uh, uh, you know, like Lexapro or Paxil, some of the older ones, you're driving up the serotonin system and serotonin has a negative correlation with the dopamine system. So the dopamine systems linked with romantic love. And as you're driving up the serotonin system, you are suppressing the dopamine system. And so I think it becomes harder and harder to fall in love. You know, I mean, there's some people who need those drugs to get out of bed. I'm not suggesting that 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 these are all bad. But the bottom line is uh, a lot of people take them uh, to calm themselves under difficult circumstances, and then they don't get off them. And what these drugs do is blunt the emotions for a good reason. If you're really struggling, it's probably very useful to blunt the emotions so you don't kill yourself and you get on with living. But the bottom line is an awful lot of people solve their problems and they keep taking the drugs. And I cannot tell you, I have letters from all over the world all the time. And the people will say, the last one was, I don't know, last week, like all the time. And a guy writes, and he says, you know, I have been married for 11 years. We have two small boys, five and eight. Um, we were very happily married. Uh, my wife went back to school. She wasn't doing well. They put her on one of these SSRIs. And about two months later, she came back to me. She said, I, I, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. And then they say to me, is it the drugs? And it could well be the drugs. Wow. Um, because when you suppress the emotions, you're suppressing the ability, uh, I think, to fall in love and to form a deep
0: attachment to somebody. My gosh. I mean, that's that's so consequential. That needs to be disclosed before those drugs get offered.
1: Well, I think they should at least. And by the way, it also in seventy three percent of pill, you know, kills the sex drive. And um,
0: that's a that's and, a big number, seventy three percent. Yeah, uh,
1: I that was uh, I wrote that academic article a few years ago. It could have changed. Now they are beginning to give SNRIs. They're trying to um, drive up the serotonin, but also drive up norepinephrine, uh, which that will dopamine? help you was feel that- your emotions. But the bottom line is, I cannot tell you how many. Uh, uh letters i get from people and they don't understand it i mean six weeks ago this person was madly in love with them and now they are dulled and that's how what long they does do. it take
0: do you know like when if you decide to go on one of those drugs how long does it take for uh it to sort of kill that that center the love center you know uh
1: nobody knows i'm the or first just put it to sleep to it. uh and i would really like people to pick up on this it could be very easy to measure um all kinds of people go into a therapist or a psychologist in terrible trouble um you know you could see what the brain is like before the drugs and then after the drugs and then after you solve the problem you know and you could also give them all kinds of questionnaires it really wouldn't be hard to to really study this i alas i've gone on to doing other things but uh Um, I do write about it. And as you know, in one of my TED Talks, I do talk about it. And I just have so many experiences with it. I mean, uh, I'll think of another one. Uh, You know, it's a young guy. He was madly in love with a woman and he was doing poorly in school. So he got on one of these drugs, uh, went back to her after a year and a half, said, I don't love you anymore. I don't feel anything left. After about eight months, he got off the drugs. He suddenly realized it was the drugs. He he, he he bought all the roses he could carry in his arms, walked over to his house, her house, knocked, and she opened the door and he said, you know, will you take me back? I think it was the drugs. And in that case, she did. Uh, but I mean, it's not that people shouldn't use these drugs, but they should understand. Mm. Okay. Am I willing to jeopardize my sex drive? Am I willing to jeopardize feelings of romantic love and attachment? I made a major speech uh, to the American Psychiatric Association years ago. And afterwards, somebody, a guy, an MD in the New York Times wrote, and he said, you know, I heard Fisher's lecture. He said... I, I am susceptible to depression. The last time that I took one of these drugs, I realized that I no longer love my wife or my children. I realized that it was the drugs after hearing Helen talk. I got off the drugs. And then I'll never forget this line. He said, my wife and my children is more important. Next time, I'm just going to try to go through the depression without the drugs. Wow. Or All find right. a different kind of drugs. There's others that can be of use. I'm not a psychiatrist, but uh, I do study the brain. And, you know, it's so interesting, Megan, people have not really respected romantic love as a brain system. When I first wrote my first academic article on it, one of the four reviewers wrote back and said, you can't study this. It's part of the supernatural. And I thought, hang on here. We don't think fear is part of the supernatural. We don't think anger is part of the supernatural. People kill for love. (laughs) It's not part of the supernatural. And I do think that a lot of people in the medical community are only just beginning to realize That when you give drugs, it's not going to only tamper with pain or anxiety, but also with these powerful brain systems for happiness, Mm -hmm. romantic love and feelings of attachment. I
0: mean, it's ironic, of course, because you're taking them to to try to amp up your happiness. But if they suppress your ability to love, your ability, your your desire for sex, which, as you point out earlier, does all sorts of good things for you, by the way, Helen, like Dr. Laura also says, have sex, even if you're not feeling like having sex, because it's great for your body and it's great for your relationship, um, yeah. that, then then query whether it's doing more harm than good. All right, I have a weird uh, last question, or w- at least one of the last. This love dynamic, this, you know, the firing of the brain, the good feelings, all of that. Can it be triggered with non romantic love, like love for one's children?
1: You know, there's a very specific, wonderful question uh there's very specific uh, traits linked with romantic love and yes you can certainly see um a new mother being focused on that child intense elation uh the ability to overlook what they that they don't uh like or they're worried about um obsessive thinking uh craving to be with the child highly motivated to to you know to be with the child etc so that had a lot of the traits of intense romantic love uh, the child also takes on special meaning. They're different from any other child. They're focused on it, high energy, uh, uh, emotional dependence on the child. All A lot of the basic traits of romantic love you can see under other circumstances. But there is one trait of romantic love <clears throat> that's not involved, and that is sexual craving. I yeah, mean, you the lust know, part, obviously. Sex with you're two months old. <laughs> you oh, know, boy. So the bottom line is the full constellation of these traits is not there but you know you can sort of be madly love with a girlfriend and be a total heterosexual but um you don't want to have sex with her but yeah. um uh, so be this, all, this i mean of- i think
0: what 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 this I mean, is leading me to conclude love is great love is awesome all sorts of different love are important and wonderful to have in your life but there's only one r- sort of romantic love that's a special lane with the sex drive and the romantic love and the attachment and you know if if done right and well and nurtured with good decisions, uh, there's nothing else like it.
1: There's, uh, and by the way, you just said something, another thing that was very important. I love poetry because uh, I think it's a great artifact of the human brain. It, it really expresses the emotions. And there was an Indian poet from India named Kabir in the 1500s, I think. And he once said, here's the quote, the lane of love is narrow. There's room for only one. Now, you can feel attached to a lot of people. You can have sex with a lot of people, but romantic love is focused on just one. Mm.
0: Great, great. So fun to think about and, and just interesting to think about how to nurture it in our own lives, right? Everybody's got it at some point or had it at some point or hopes to have it at another point, uh, whether it's on you know one of these websites or someplace else. So I think you've given us a lot to think about. What a pleasure. Thank you for being so open, Helen. It's been a delight getting to oh, know you. Oh, you're a
1: sweetheart. I'll just say one thing about it. You know, romantic love is primordial, it's adaptable, and it's eternal. It's going to be with us a lot
0: longer than Valentine's Day. (laughs) Ah, amen to that. All the best. We didn't feel like we could end the show without bringing on my my colleague Danny Roth, who is the one whose love journey we discussed. <laughs> so, Danny, you were actually talking to Helen before the show, and then you heard her advice for like during the show for being on Hinge again. Hinge, she's the one who educated me on this. Danny is Hinge and Bumble and Tinder. So, did you learn anything helpful? Yeah,
2: some things. I will say, she talks about activity a lot. And if I see one more man post a photo of him on a boat with a fish. It's not going (laughs) to do well. It's not going to (laughs) work. What do you want to see? You know, I just want to see honesty. I want to see personality. I don't really care about seeing you with your car or fish. Mm. I want to see, you know, you with your friends. I want to see you at a concert. I want to see you doing something that you actually enjoy and are passionate about.
0: All right. Now let's let's do some data on you. How, How old are you? I'm 24. Okay. And are you in the market for, you know, a relationship or just, you know, casual good times. I'm in
2: the market for anything. Mm. If it's fun and it leads to something, okay.
0: Okay. If it doesn't, so, okay. Do you have a certain age range you want?
2: Um probably older. I try to stay like 25 to 32.
0: Older. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> older than you. Okay, I got it. <laughs> That's good. Okay. And do you care like if he's never been married, if he's married, has a kid, you know, I mean, not married now, but you know, was <laughs> no i don't care okay so you're so would you describe yourself as like one of those active gals or are you more like stay at home watch a movie you know what how do you describe yourself on your profiles
2: yeah i'm active it really sucks which i don't even know if you know this megan but about four months ago i broke my ankle Mm. so things have slowed down a bit for me um so i haven't been really dating lately but now i'm in hoboken just moved here so anything's open. Anything's Mm -hmm. available. I'm excited.
0: how, How has your job affected your dating prospects? When you say that you work for me, has that been a plus or a minus in your world?
2: Well, it's so funny because my rule is don't talk politics, religion, or really family during the first date. But the minute I bring up Megyn Kelly, everything goes out the window because obviously politics gets involved.
0: Yeah. And obviously you dump anybody who has a negative reaction obviously. Okay, good. Just making sure. And, and the next one who does that before you dump him, ask him if he wants to come on the show. Deal, deal. <laughs> I think I could do some good in reversing his, his feelings, his backward I think feelings. So. Put him in the hot seat. Yeah. Right. Why not? All right. Now, wait, let me ask you though. So hinge, is that, is that the site of choice now? Would you say for people your age, like respectable yeah. young women who aren't just looking for one night? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You
2: can post six pictures and then, which Helen said, six photos, and you can choose three prompts of your choice. And they have like 75 prompts you can
0: choose from. Mm. Do you feel pressure to put up a bikini photo? You know, like it's all about showing his skin today.
2: Yeah, I try and do crop tops. I try not to do a full
0: bikini, but I appreciate that as your I have employer. A photo, I'm not going <laughs> to I think that, I mean, I, you can do what you want, but. I would just say, save some for, you know, the big reveal. It's better to let them wonder oh, yeah. a little. I just,
2: right? I just know it.
0: I'm 24
2: and I only can have this body for so long.
0: Oh, sister, you
2: don't know how true that is. Single tear.
0: <laughs> well, listen, I love you. You're an incredibly hard worker. You're great at what you do. And one of the beauties of getting asked to come on the Megan Kelly show is you get to go through Danny Roth. And it is a pleasant experience start to finish. Thank you, lady. And thank you for revealing so much about your own life. Love you, MK. love you too babe leave me a comment in the apple comments section i will read them all i read one today that was so amazing it had a reference to my favorite movie Willy wonka and suggested a new tagline which i am kicking around um so i do love to hear from you and check out youtube.com slash megan kelly and subscribe there too which helps us out and helps me get the product to everyone who enjoys the show thank you for listening and have a great weekend Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.